You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Creatures Podcasts. This is your host, Angie, and today we'll be talking all about the creative lives of animals. And I'm really excited to be talking with professor, author, and fellow animal lover, Dr. Carol Gilotti. She is professor emerita in dynamic media in the Department of Critical and Cultural Studies at the Emily Carr University of Design, which is located in the beautiful Vancouver, Canada. She's a brilliant investigator, writer, and animal nature and lover. And she recently wrote the book entitled The Creative Lives of Animals. So today we'll be discussing some of my favorite topics, including animal behavior, animal intelligence, engineering, emotions, and even culture as it relates to their creativity. I promise you will learn some incredible facts today about animals that will definitely give you something fun and thoughtful to share. So welcome, Carol. Hello. Thanks for coming on All Creatures Podcast. Thank you for having me here. I'll have to make sure that I am pronouncing your name right. (laughs) Dr. Carol Gilotti. It's Gilotti, but you... Gilotti. Yes, very good. Okay. Yes. Thank you for helping me pronounce it right. Before the interview, she showed me to put my hand kind of towards my mouth and say it with a little bit more poise. And I was able to pick up the Italian accent briefly. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Well, Carol, before we get started and dive into this amazing book that you wrote, I had so much fun reading. I have like this huge note sheets and things underlined in the book. It was just, it was just a brilliant read and a lot of fun for me. I was hoping you could give our audience a little background about yourself. Oh, I'd love to. It's it's a really varied background, so I it I'll try not to take too long with it, but it, it my original background probably, you know, professionally was as an actress and I actually went to university in performance studies, but I just <laughs> I decided that I didn't like saying other people's words which is not very good for an actress. (laughs) Definitely not, yeah. (laughs) I had always drawn and and painted, and and so I I got really involved in printmaking. And so I went back to get a master's in printmaking. And so I, I was a practicing artist for many years, and my work was always about a relationship with animals. And at 40, I decided I wanted to do high-end animation, and so I went and got my doctorate in from the Advanced Computing Center for Arts and Design, and I did do some high-end animation, but I started writing. I had to do a dissertation, of course, and when I started writing, I, I realized I really enjoyed writing and investigating and doing research, so I did a... a the dissertation is on, it's called Aesthetics of a Virtual World, and it is on interactive, the ethics of interactive virtual design. So it sounds a little different, you know, you'd think from what I... I think most PhD titles, if you read them (laughs) off to somebody who's not specifically in the field, they just 
kind of smile and nod their head. So it's, that's the thing with the PhDs is they're very, very, it's a very narrow niche, even in, in your own field, like you said, in, in creative animation and things like that. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, this was in the early nineties. So it was actually when virtual environments and virtual reality was having a big moment. And so in any case, again, all my writing then in academia first was about ethics and technology, but I always tried to bring animals into the picture. And then something happened that I, I, the writing really switched to being about animals. And that was the bio art moment that still exists in the art world. And, and I decided that there needed to be somebody who was thinking about animals in the art world for things like this and really, you know, speaking up for them. So I did a book called Leonardo's Choice, Genetic Technologies and Animals. And once again, I, you know, I did lots and lots of research and in the sciences, in the arts, in a lot of fields, but only because I had all these other people writing. It was an edited book. And so I, I really enjoyed having those people speak up. But I, my, my writing, I felt for a long time that it was really about animals being victims. And what I wanted to do when I retired was this book, really talking about animals as really powerful, essential beings. And so I, when I retired, I had the time to do all the research and really found lots and lots out there. And yeah, so that's a shortened version of my background. As we sit here today having our coffee and talking all about the creative lives of animals, but you wrote this book, Leonardo's Choice, Genetic Technologies and Animals, which I have not read, but I'm excited to read here in the future. But in your new book, you shift and talk more about the evidence of animal intelligence, animals as empathetic beings, and and correlating this to how they can be considered creative. So what prompted you to dive into the science of animal behavior and cognition, and then of course, ultimately tie it to creativity? Because I study a lot of animal behavior and try to stay updated on it. And it is a very big and daunting and exciting field of research that is growing, especially when it comes to animal intelligence. I feel like every week there's a new article that's yes. supporting things that you and I have innately known for a long time <laughs> yeah. and that you talk about in the book. So how did you switch gears and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to dive into this literature? Well, it's interesting. You know, you say that again, it wasn't that I hadn't looked at those things before. I certainly had read, you know, Mark Beckov's The Emotional Lives of Animals. Which was or yeah, When Elephants Weep, another classic one. Yeah, by Jeffrey Masson. And so, yeah, I've been reading all those things um, my whole life, along with things on animal rights, along in philosophy. But it really became evident to me that, you know, as you said, things that we take for granted, you and I, that a lot of people didn't know. And it was kind of before this incredible explosion of things in the newspaper, in the Guardian, in the New York Times, in the Globe and Mail. I'm a Canadian citizen as well, so I'm mentioning the Globe and Mail. You know, everywhere, all these things about animals. And and so I had found some articles, and actually the the article that I found first that really talked about creativity was by the Kaufmans. He's a psychologist and she's a biologist. And it was a, it was just a short article on how animals could be creative. And it just was like, yes, yes. So at that point, I just started to look for everything. And then a book came out by Kevin Leyland on animal innovation. And then another book came out in 2015 when I was actually doing research and writing the book by the Kaufmans, and that's Animal Innovation and Creativity. And I love the fact that they used creativity. Both of these were edited books. So, you know, I just kind of kept collecting things until I did a, a conference on right before I left Emily Carr University of Arts and Design and because I was retiring. And that was, I called Animal Influence. And 
we had invited a number of different kinds of people, biologists, philosophers, anthropologists, landscape architects, you know, all different philosophers. And that was that artists were really influenced by animals in their work. And after I did that, I mean, the main thing that I think all of us came away from that conference was animals are really creative. <laughs> so, you know, once I, I, I had all this information, then I just wanted to have this be a popular book, a trade book, something that was for the general public and wasn't completely academic. And well, and Carol, I just loved it too, because the book chapters are organized very, very well. And there's animal intelligence, communication, play, building, sexual exuberance, empathy, and culture, and how each one of these categories intertwine and help demonstrate and support your thesis that animals are creative individuals. So to help get our listeners excited about the book the way that I was and how much I learned, even as an animal behavior nerd over here, I learned a ton while reading this book. Could you give us a few specific examples how some of these behavioral categories can showcase animal creativity? Like for me, songbirds, beavers, my goodness. So empathy and chickens, I had so many favorites. It's hard to pick. Well, I'll start with communication because intelligence seems to me to be sort of a given in in many ways, even those those kind you know very different kinds of intelligences for each species, right? But in communication, I I give a a lot of the very the first half of the chapter I think is is about Konslobachikov and his research on prairie dog language. I love that. And, yes. Yeah, and you know, there's a person who has spent his entire life out in the field with his graduate students, with prairie dogs. And he has a book called Chasing Dr. Doolittle. And, you know, it's a bril- I think it's a brilliant book. He's very direct. It's really easy to read. But the idea that animals, and in this case, prairie dogs, have a syntax, you know, they have different parts of the language that help them communicate to other prairie dogs. And so he gives, you know, these are his examples. I know one of my favorites is that they, that prairie dogs have different alarm calls for different yes. animals. Yeah, the difference between, and a difference between whether the air's coming by air or by land. Right, right, yeah. And so in this case, they, he and his graduate students, I, I also have this image of him out in the field with his graduate students, and, you know, were certain that it was not what the prairie dogs were saying, that it was a German shepherd. And as it got closer, I realized, of course, the, the prairie dogs were correct. It was a coyote. So... You know, that that to me was really, I'm sure that was a moment when all that work that they were doing really paid off, even though they had not believed it in some ways up until then. But then it was like, it, it was definite. You know, they prairie dogs know what they're talking about and they are talking to each other. And the other thing, let's see, in terms of play and of course, there are a number of people. Mark Bekov is a well-known play researcher, as well as Gordon, Gordon Burkhart. And both have really rich research on, on animals and play. And, and of course, I, I also, in terms of creativity, the, the play is so important. Kids who have never been able to play, human kids, really have trouble with a lot of things solving things, you know, being able to be social in a way that is appropriate, you know, because play in many ways allows a, often a young member of a species to learn about, in, in many ways, how it is, how one should act as a member of this species. Mark and Jessica Pierce have a book called Wild Justice, and they make the case that play is a way that animals can experience what is fair and 
what were you know what is right and what is wrong in within that particular species oh i just loved learning that spiders can have courtship play and then paper wasp do play yeah. fighting and yeah. I, I i don't really invertebrates are definitely out of my reach and I, and I love learning about them on the podcast but it's not something chris and i typically tackle because it's definitely out of our wheelhouse and so I just love how insects were even included in this. And it was really, for me, really eye-opening. Chris and I have talked about getting some invertebrate biologists on the podcast to help to help open our eyes about bees and ants. I mean, just when we talk about some of these social behaviors and social intelligence and just things that are probably, like I said, almost too alien for us to even begin to understand. Or they have, it's like they have an extra sense that us humans, sixth sense or seventh sense, if you will. Well, they don't look like us. Right, know, so. right, right. I don't know about that, though. I, I kind of think, <laughs> kind of think there's some comparisons in terms of everything. You sure, know? absolutely. I, there really is. If you look at the anatomy of animals and you look at how, how you know, underneath the skin, too, there's lots of... Oh, Lots of yeah. similarities, yeah. Well, and I'll never forget when I was a zookeeper taking behavioral data on this animal called a Sichuan Takin, which is like a big yak-like species from the China-Tibet region. Just a beautiful, beautiful, large hoofstock with horns. And we had just gotten this female, and there was a fence between her and the male because it wasn't necessarily their breeding season, and they can be aggressive because they have horns when they're put together. So we were being extremely cautious because these these animals are threatened and endangered in the wild. And so at any rate, I was taking data and watching this female Chavi and she was just like pacing the the fence trying to get the male to like look at her. And <laughs> and then she's like even yeah, you know, she's just like kind of acting a little bit like a a little bit of a, I don't want to say a fool, that's not the right word, but a, a flirt. Little, flirt. Yeah. And a little desperate, <laughs> you know, she'd urinate over near him and then like, and but then like, just like kept like, following him and 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 I was like girl you need to play hard to get like what you all, all of a sudden they dawned on myself and my own like you know 20s whatever silly relationships I had at the time then I'm like oh my god I do the same thing like I need to, I need to stop calling so and so and acting like that but it was there you go. it sounds so silly but it was a real aha moment for me like I saw myself in that female talking and then it helped me correct my behavior and spoiler alert once I stopped acting like that, of course the uh, the, suitor, the suitor did call. So yeah. uh, all right. So this is obvious. this is even before texting was a thing. That's and you age, learned but... that in your twenties, which is really yes. amazing. Yes. You know, all by watching me yeah. all the way to my forties to figure that one out. <laughs> all by wa- yeah, all by watching the the, the Sichuan talk and chubby. So bless her heart. <laughs> but Carol, that leads me a little into my next question. As we as we give some of these examples about animals as creative beings, whether it's their communication or their play or their building. And so I wonder when we when we think of a beaver building a dam or we think of a songbird, oh my gosh, like the brown thrasher that has 2,400 songs. Like, I don't even think I can spell 2,400 words, let alone sing a song. <laughs> I mean, I am the worst at memorizing like lyrics and tunes and all that. So can we consider these animals as artists and these examples of art that you mentioned? Or how, how do you approach that? I talk about this in the book is that I think, and having, you know, not having been, but am an artist and having taught art and including some ideas about art history, what we do is art and we have a name for it. It's called art and it has a history and as done. And and categories, right? Like and categories or, and, as Don Krudsma kept saying, it has baggage, it has baggage. And I agree with him on that in terms of art, not on creativity. I think that is a universal quality. But art, human art, is a subset of that. And yes, we have what we call art, and there's different kinds of aesthetics that have changed over time. And, you know, I know some people still think, oh, it's just about beauty. But, of course, you know, if you're in the art world at all, you know that all those those kinds of aesthetic models have changed. And sometimes the aesthetic is about gender, identity, political sorts of aesthetics. And certainly now, I think what's really exciting is the echo aesthetic that's happening it has been happening for quite a while but you get a lot of 
human art that is really trying to understand the natural world. Sure. Um, yes. And I've so seen some yeah. really cool photos. Cause I, with a lot of where I go, whether it's a doctor's appointment is with a tied to the university of Florida. And there's mm-hmm. been some brilliant photos of like cells that were taken under a high powered microscope. Right, right. And, but then they blow them up and, and I don't know if the shading, but they're hanging on the walls and I, they're just, they're stunning. And it's just yeah. literally yeah. photos of our natural world. Right. Yeah. So that's for me, why I would not call what animals do art because they're doing their they're practicing their creativity in their own ways for their own reasons and calling it art i think is unfair and it diminishes their ability to be creative in their own ways so again this comparison always to humans for everything you know this anthro anthropocentric way of thinking is really quite and now we, I think we're beginning to understand how this has been sure, to the natural world and mm-hmm. to animals, and certainly now to ourselves, you know, in terms of dealing with the effects of that climate well, changes. It, well, and there was a beautiful part for me personally, I think it was in the emotional agency mm-hmm. chapter, actually about mothers talking about the creativities of mothers, humans, and then of course, animals alike. And that really stood out to me because I used to be, or used to feel very creative when I would play guitar or sing or songwrite. I used it as an Mm -hmm. outlet, but currently my life is so busy that the guitar and the piano, they collect more dust these days than they actually get utilized. And I'm hopeful that that will change, but in the meantime, with dealing with my children and interacting with them on a daily basis, I love how you describe the creativity of mothers and how that's another thing that's been just completely uh, overlooked through time. And it just, I realize that when I am playing with my kids or helping them yeah. solve a problem or singing and dancing together, that we are being creative. And I'm not the only mother right. out there that's doing that, that animals are doing that as well. I'm a mother of one son, so it's not like I raised millions of children, but... One is enough to understand. <laughs> but, you know, teaching is very mothering sometimes. Of it's it, it shouldn't be, but it ends up being that way because your students sometimes need it in order to progress. And so, you know, I find that if I am able to give that a little bit, then it's it's okay. Yeah. I always pull back from it though, because it's not really, I don't want p- people, to, my students to think of me as their mother. That's not right. good either. No, um, no. It's, a, it's a fine line. Like you said, it's not black or white, right? It's that area in between. But I do think, I actually wrote an article a long time ago about mothering the future and that one of the things that mothers, and that would be a male who was mothering or a trans person who was mothering, the idea of mothering, of actually taking care of a small being is pretty universal. And mm-hmm. so, and of course, in the animal world, sometimes it's done by the fathers. Sure. Mm-hmm. Or both. It's, yeah. Or or. You know, all uh, or, yeah, like the sisters and, and right, uh, exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think it's really important to think about that in terms of what mothers do. And and I said in that essay, and I didn't say it clearly in here because I didn't want to get into that too much. But being able to mother and and well is to be able to see the present and what needs to be done, but also to see what you are giving to that child or allowing that child to learn to become an older being or a grown being to deal with situations that will come in the future. And those things I think are, (laughs) you know, they're really essential to our, our being. Oh, absolutely. And that's where I love the tie into the culture because you have a whole section in the book dedicated to culture. I loved all the chapters, but this one, I always love learning more about culture because we're just really starting, I think, in the field to learn more about this. And so, Carol, when thinking about culture and researching for the book, looking at all the different species, 
What surprised you the most? I think one of the most interesting things for me was learning about bees. I, I, I know other artists who have spent quite a lot of time with bees and their, their behavior. And, 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 you know, I have to say that I, 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 you know, I wasn't as all as interested as I am now. I love that. <laughs> oh, always learning and growing, evolving. I love it. You know, and Thomas Seeley, the very well-known bee researcher, you know, his, his research is just fabulous because what it does, first of all, I consider how, and this is in the architecture section, but I consider brainstorming and actually, for instance, in architecture, where to build is certainly part of the creative process for an architect. Absolutely. Um, And brainstorming is pretty much what a group of bees do when they leave their former nest to find a new nest because there needs to be a new queen. And so they have to find a particular place that will do as the nest. And I found this most interesting because of Seeley's research, he is saying and documents this, that there are certain bees that are scouts and they will go out and find all these different places as individuals, not as one hive, but the individuals go out and they bring back information about what these places are by waggle dancing. And if somebody decides, okay, well, I'm going to go, okay, this one might be good, but I have to go look at it first if I'm going to agree with you. Because I love at that. some point, yeah. they all have to agree. Yeah. In Seeley's documentation, he says what happens is that the bees find a quorum. They don't find a consensus, but they find enough bees that feel that this is the right place, that they agree that this particular place is the right place for the new nest and then they they decide yes this is it and I just found that fascinating I really did we know we need bees because they pollinate and oh they make honey but they have this whole intelligent creative life that we've not understand culture understood until now yeah and it's all about their culture of course this is what they do you know This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. And so, Carol, with that being said, overall, mm-hmm. all, I mean, so much, so many wonderful details in the book. Of course, we just don't have time to touch all, touch on all of them. And that's why I'm really encouraging that everybody reads this book. And we'll talk more about those details as we get towards the end of the podcast. And of course, we'll have it up in our show notes. But was there something that you learned from researching this book that really heavily impacted you or changed you? For example, myself talking about laughter and great apes, that makes sense to me, but, and the fact that mice giggle. And so then thinking about coming from an animal science background, thinking about mice giggling and 
just how they are lab animals and their welfare has improved greatly in in a laboratory setting. Well, I've been vegan for many years and so it wasn't that I suddenly stopped eating meat. That wasn't that wasn't what changed me. But the fa- again, that idea that the individual, which I've always been concerned about in terms of my writing, but there was an enormous reason to think about individuals that went beyond anything. And that was that they are important in their own lives. And and I believe that. I've always believed that. But that also that they made such a difference in terms of how biodiversity develops. Well, and Carol, with that being said, reading your book and really thinking about and understanding and viewing the animals as, as creative, intelligent beings what role does that play in wildlife conservation? Well, and this was the, the last chapter, actually, or, which really was the epilogue. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I know I love that. That was it was a great epilogue. I it's funny because I had the an epilogue wasn't that one, but it was kind of it was different. It wasn't as definitive about mm-hmm. those things. I took it out, and then one of the reviewers suggested I have a a last chapter, and I. I said, well, I do. I'm going to put that back in. And then when I rewrote it, that I I started doing all this research on, you know, conservation. Right. Yeah, we're in a crisis. Uh, And and Mm -hmm. and it then it was again this idea that, yeah, this all makes sense together. A culture, individuals, cultures, this needs to be taken into consideration in conservation because it doesn't work if we think we can kill a, you know, we can kill this many of the species and those individuals, they're just part of a species. So they don't count. Right. They don't matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at like Jonathan Balcom's book, what a fish knows. I mean, fish are individuals. Fishes are each, mm-hmm. each of I, those fishes yeah, mm-hmm. are individuals who make up this larger habitat of the ocean. And that's their environment. And if we eat them all. <laughs> or destroy yeah. their environment that they live in. Yes. Well. Or parts of it. Yeah. And and so the fact that we have decimated so many fish populations is really quite, quite upsetting. So, yeah, that was really exciting for me to, you know, do that chapter too. I, I you know, that was one of the ideas maybe to maybe continue on that route for the book, the next book. But. Ah, yes, I have that question coming up. But Chris and I on the podcast is, is an environmental conservation, animal, wildlife educators. It's just it's just really, there's a lot of hopeful things out there uh, yeah. of, of, of work that is being done to save certain species or groups of species or land. But yes, we definitely need more, more voices and more attention to it. And I think taking this this idea and these examples of not only groups of animals as intelligent or emotional, but actually as creative individuals that have these lives filled with all this different emotional agency could potentially have an impact and really make people that were maybe either on the fence about whether this, this one animal's life is important to maybe have a little bit of a wake-up call. Carol, I also want to ask, as a former zookeeper myself, and yeah. I'm a big supporter of AZA-accredited zoos and aquariums, working with animals and behind the scenes there, I do feel, after reading your, your book and finding all the support for animals with their creative lives, I do think that if these animals that live under human care are giving, given naturalistic habitats, space to roam, social reproductive freedoms, enrichment items, and of course, great welfare, which a lot of the accredited zoos have really evolved into doing more of over the past 20, 30 years and are striving to do more. Do you think that these good zoos or these accredited zoos have a role in helping us humans understand more about animal creativity, intelligence, empathy? Yeah, I thought a lot about this question because I knew you're 
your work that you did. And I, I have to say, I say in the book that I don't support zoos and I don't go to them anymore. And, and that's very true. I, and the, one of the things that I thought was really, really interesting lately was involved in a dissertation defense the University of Canterbury at Christchurch for the New Zealand Center for Animal Studies. And she's now Dr. Eva DeVincent, wrote a book on, I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant dissertation. It was so well-researched and it was well-written, which doesn't always happen. And what she did was actually look at how zoos treat individuals and the kind of constraints on zoos to make money and how that impacts how individuals are treated in zoos. Sometimes, well, you know, they give them biographies. And is that biography, you know, really true? What was great too, I mean, and this is the thing, I mean, it's very easy to criticize. It's very difficult to come up with a solution one of the things that she, well, the big thing that she says in the last chapter is that it, we need to really take that commercial and idea up out so that these can be sanctuaries. Zoos can become sanctuaries rather than zoos. You know, zoos have certainly, you know, if you go into the book and you look at me at 20 years old, the only way I would have seen an orangutan was in a zoo. In a zoo, sure. I mean, that's it the really case in... for most people still this many years later. It it really, yeah. unless you're a researcher on Sumatra or Borneo, which are having a hard time finding them there or perhaps working with them at a sanctuary, sanctuary in Indonesia, it's going to be in a zoo, of course, or but maybe a sanctuary. I also think that, you know, people can change. Things change. Yes. And mm -hmm. it's important, for instance, to understand in, you know, w what the present is and how that is affecting all those things. And once you see something, I think you can't really unsee it. Sure. sure. You know, I mean, my, <laughs> my reaction was, oh, my God, this is an individual sorrowful being. And I you know, it was down on zoos after that. Sure, so, sure. Know. And I mean, honestly, I started out, I mean, I, I had the zoology major and mm -hmm. just because I loved animals and I wanted to learn more about their science. And right. I had really never been to zoos. I wasn't really, I wasn't for them, but I did get an internship, a behavior internship. So not as a yep. zookeeper, but just watching uh, the behavior of golden lion tamarins at Zoo Atlanta. And they were in this free range outdoor exhibit where they mm -hmm. just hop from tree to tree and basically they don't ever come to the ground. So as long as you have eyes on them and, and then of course we're learning about their behavior, they could basically be in this free unfenced area. And it was a wonderful exhibit at the time. This was about 20 or so years ago. And so that was kind of my start of like, huh, they're not, it's not all the orangutan sad behind bars, depending on which zoo, which species and stuff like that. And so, and then of course I would also counter that as an individual like that, the orangutan that was maybe sad that day, a keeper that works with it or somebody behind the scenes potentially most likely has data of all this joy that it has on other parts of the day as well, mm -hmm. depending on its interaction. And once again, a lot of it really is depending on, on the zoo and the habitat and what they what they are doing. And so I know it's always an interesting topic, but I always, I just always feel that for me personally, working inside the zoo and seeing that the animals have all these positive emotions and this positive welfare that ideally, I always say, I would love all animals to be free and living in the wild. And you just not even sanctuaries because some sanctuaries aren't accredited and they're not that great either. So you really have to do quote unquote, your research to know what you're supporting when you go to some of these yeah. educational slash entertainment organizations. But then that's where the AZA kind of golden seal is helpful because you know, they're giving money back to conservation and they're only participating in endangered species breeding and they're not taking animals out of the wild and kind of this higher criteria that's come across in the past 20, 20 or so years. But uh, yeah, it's just, you know, for me, it's just being inside of it and really seeing seeing the individuals and the personalities. And then of course, watching all the children come to the educational exhibits where they can 
pet a snake or touch a bunny. Or I worked at the farm in the zoo where we would milk a cow or something. And these are children that where they live in their socioeconomic status, they had never seen an animal. And so I, I always believe that is, I'd love them to be in the wild, but unfortunately there a lot of the wild is being devastated. And so some of these conservation breeding programs have helped put animals back into the wild, which for me is really exciting. And then then the money they're donating to conservation. And so we'll just have to agree to differ on that. Yes, uh, we will. (laughs) And so I think it's really important to keep critiquing and looking and making sure that, you know, maybe there's other ways, very creative ways to go about this zoos, you know, eating meat. But the the bottom line is how do we, for animals, is we need to think of them as individuals. Well, and well, and individual animals, that you, as you mentioned, that are so critical for the environments that they live in and that they belong in, that yeah. they're part of the ecosystem there. And so in areas where these animals are completely extinct or at least really low in number, I mean, there has to be this devastating ecological cascade that's happening from the top up down. I mean, what's happening to the fungus in these areas? What's happening to the seeds and the plants? And so, yeah, and that's, that's definitely why I would love to see wildlife in the wild for the rest of my life, thriving in, and in being repopulated in areas, but like I'm rewilding. I mean, yes, a exactly. Movement uh, and rewilding mm-hmm. that I think. And, 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 you know, 20 years ago, and I think you mentioned this in the book about there being like animal, like you can actually get your thesis or your doctorates now in studying animal intelligence or animal <laughs> emotions. Jane all says, mm-hmm. says that. Yeah. And, because... I, and, I, and now there's actually, there's rewilding or reintroduction as a science. Right. And so yeah. that's what I'm excited about in the future is we, us like animal scientists in general, just learn more about how to collect data and have the animals tell us. If they are rewild, is it better to put them with more members of the same species? Or we were actually just recently covering the Spix macaw that they're re-releasing with a similar type of macaw called the Illingers to hopefully help teach these Spix macaw in the wild how to be mm-hmm. wild macaws. Right. So, I mean, we're getting creative and how and trying. And, no, absolutely. And, I think there's lots of things going on that, yeah. that are good. Even theoretically, the idea of a zoo, I think for me, is an issue. Having been a sickly child who was sort of literally behind bars sometimes because they would put those bed th- rails up. I, I, you know, I think we need to start to step away from that for, for many reasons. And again, we'll have to agree to disagree. But I do think that there's lots going on everywhere. And again, all those little steps, I think, contribute. Even if it seems like a small step, whoever's doing this is contributing. Absolutely. So, and I, I, you know, one of the things I, I say in the book is that I, I tried to take a lot of the research mostly from in the wild because mm-hmm. I thought that would be really more realistic in terms of how animals are creative, not in a lab. And one of the things I did, I did, and, and here's, you know, you asked me, how did I change? I mean, I used to criticize, I still, I'm sure I can criticize science if you really want me to. But that I, makes you a good scientist. <laughs> <laughs> but I was blown away by scientists who have, you know, biologists or ethologists have spent their whole lives oh, with whole... one animal. Yes, yes. You know, it, so mm-hmm. I think... Data is is definitely there. I mean, they're, yeah, they're yeah. Da- and, and that's the thing. Good science, good scientists are very are very data-driven, and they might start off with a hypothesis and then over years completely change it, which is is really fascinating. And, there, and, and yeah, I mean, there's been... It's interesting, when I was actually at the internship in Atlanta... I was working with a, a primatologist working on getting her PhD and she was talking to me and she's like, well, I, I, I started off studying this one species of monkey in Brazil. I forget what it was. She's like, but I spent two years in the field with my neck cranked up <laughs> in binoculars watching their behavior. And I have like a neck ache and bad posture. She's like, so I, for my dissertation, I, I switched to this golden lion tamarind, which is much, much more low canopy dwelling. And <laughs> 
Anyway, so she's like, so basically, yes, you have to be whatever yeah. you pick to study, you have yeah. to be like all in because that's what you'll be yeah. doing like the rest of your life. And it was just very right. eye opening to me as far as like, wow. And of course, this podcast too, talking to these these field experts, and we talked to tons of experts, but just how dedicated, I mean, one, one yeah. gentleman, Sunarto that I talked to that tracks tigers in Sumatra, they do, they have a lot of camera traps out on the islands and yeah. he will hike him and his team. Yeah. Of trackers will hike for 14 days camping in like bug infested swamps of Indonesia to just like get the data from one camera trap and then hike another 14 days back out. I mean, right. It's just mind blowing and and inspiring and fascinating. And so it it is one of the things in the, the book that I, I really enjoyed was the new thinking on wildlife overpasses. Yes, um, yes. And then, you know, that there are people all over the world who are working on yes, this. Yes, yes. And, and, and the one scientist who, the biologist who's really looking at, I think it was cougars and similar, I think it was similar animals in India. The idea that, you know, sometimes it, with the overpasses, it they, the way they, were built, they funnel the animal right into where they shouldn't be because they're going to get shot, like people's farms or something, Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. So to really think about not just getting them over the highway or getting them over something, but to actually think how, what's going to happen to them on either side. Sure. So yeah, I thought that was really, that was really interesting. So yeah, I yeah, there's definitely I think there's, there is a role for science and following up with all this data and learning from from it because there's going to be some bumps in the road. Just that's part of yeah. science, yeah. and it's not going to always be perfect. But if we can learn how to do it better through data and through communication, and hopefully we will be able to save the wild and save a lot of these species. Well, Philippa Brakes, who I use in the book, is a went you know to a conservation. Her and her group went to a conservation meeting with the United Nations and you know she talked about individuals in conservation and that was the other thing was that I backed up what I was thinking you know I found that like recently like Mm -hmm. I I you know not recently but you know in terms of the book sure sure (laughs) you know in terms of writing the book I was already you know there but when I rewrote the the epilogue that particular science um and where you know conservation science was just like yeah this is exactly right wow this is great you know so anyway that's and that's the kind of thing I think that we need to be more I think there are a lot of scientists who are thinking quite openly I think so I mean I don't I think it's very different than it was and I also think I make the point in the book and I know this from experience that it's either scientists who are full professors and and don't care what anybody thinks yes. or it's younger scientists and if they're connected with the university but I, I found a lot of younger scientists were the ones that were making these big leaps good big and ways. that's very and and again that's very creative right and we definitely yeah. need more of that and that's I love your comment Carol I think it was on page 205 that in general, we should just trash the belief that we scientists or humans in general have learned all there is to know about any oh, animal, anything, you know, and then, <laughs> and then animal. of course, of course, across my desk, I read this article just this week, where a team demonstrated how bumblebees will play with balls. Yes, that was the one that, yes, I, I saw that. And I was just like, bees, bees, of course. Didn't surprise me at all. Bees. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, and that's the thing is like, just it's just so fascinating. And so what else do you think we might learn from animal intelligence and creativity, say, in 10 or 20 years from now? Well, I won't be around. Probably. Stop that. I hope. Yes, we're going to be having another interview. And <laughs> no, really, and you can be um, like, I told you so. I, I called 20 it out. years, right. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll come to haunt you. The, I, you know, I do think that things will change. My fear is that we're going to have lost quite a bit before that. And, you know, so many, I mean, this is different than biologists who are working with the animals. I mean, so many people who are working with climate change are just saying, 
it's now. We have to change right. now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, you know, that people are, are, there are some people who are taking it seriously. I think governments are trying. They're not doing a very good job. Some not enough, fast are. enough, sure. And, you know, there's always going to be, you know, lots of argument about how to do this. Again, it has to do now, you know, certainly with with funding and the idea that I think I read that Macron was irritated with the United States because they were giving rebates for to, for companies to make electric cars. And you're like, wait a minute, you can't just be mad. What I know. How, how, is this a, how is this a thing? It's, it is. It's so interesting. It just keeps reminding me of those, the, the bees and how, how they have this different, democratic society of well maybe we should make our hive here and then and then they check it out and, and they all check it out and they come they make a, a good choice even if it's not the choice that every right. bee wanted and yeah and it's just it's getting away from that black and white area and yeah i just feel like if we are going to save these species in time that we need to move quicker and 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 not be so human <laughs> Like, can we just not be so human about it? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that's why it's, I mean, I love having discussion with you about all this stuff and zoos in general, because I feel like you and I, we can, we've learned, you've done the research. I've learned from your book about the bees and how they have self-agency to, 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 to waggle where they think the best hive should be. And it's, it's all about see, seeing somebody's idea and being like, yeah, I can go with it. I can, I can see that. It doesn't have to be my idea. I don't have to be right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all the research was from science and from Mm -hmm. biologists and from other people. What Mm -hmm. I felt I brought to the book was my, and this is, this is a sort of a, a sore point with me that scientists always think that artists, people in the arts don't have method methodology. And that's what I, why I really prioritize the creative process. Mm -hmm. Yes, we do. And that's not the only creative, I mean, the only methodology about understanding art or or practicing art. Mm -hmm. It's just one of the most important, that process, rather than just to think, well, this person's creative because they drew a red flower or they do a drew a, I don't know, purple flower or something. Oh. You know, that's not what it's about. So and- I think it's really important to to think about, at least it was for me, to think that, that you know, when we are dealing with these things as humans, we have lots of different disciplines that yes. could contribute. And it's not just a one-track. No, yeah. definitely. No. And I think, I think being involved in animal science in the past in, in the graduate school level in the past 10 years is it was nice to see the, what we call interdis, interdisciplinary yeah. studies and outreach because yeah. in this day and age, it's almost hard for you to get grant money if you don't reach across the aisle and right. include right. other yeah. experts from other arenas, yeah. which I think is exactly how it should be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, for, I, I'm thinking about an artist that is now deceased, but Rachel Rosenthal, who in I saw at one of Tom Reagan's, well, actually the first conference for at, for the Culture and Animal Foundation, and she was an an artist who worked with animals. So she actually did a walk of the animals in a as part of a performance. She did her performance, and then the walk of the animals and there were just all these animals just you know walking through <laughs> through the theater on their wow. own yeah and wow. you know everything worked out it was sure. fine sure and yeah i it's just when i think about that it was interesting because rather than act as an animal they really just invited you sure. know the animals in and yeah. of course that was you know Tom Reagan and the Culture and Animal Foundation. Yeah, so. Well, it's always nice. I always love when different careers or different different jobs and industries and sciences and disciplines, I think disciplines is the word I'm looking for, come together to create something really great, something bigger than just their one discipline. Mm -hmm. And Carol, like I said, this book is so incredible 
incredibly well-researched in, in so many titles. We've actually talked about several of them on this interview today, but some of the books you mentioned as far as like The Emotional Life of Animals by Beckoff or What a Fish Knows by Belcom, those are definitely on my reading list. But other other people such as Franz de Walls or Virginia Morrow, Richard Prum, if you had to narrow it down to one or two books like that an animal nerd like me or anybody listening this to this podcast like needs to read, what would you recommend? I've got a pen out. So you can say, if you do say more than two, I understand. Yeah. I mean, you kind of <laughs> took the ones I was going to mention. Okay. So, oh, good. Um, <laughs> I haven't read I mean, those. I, so. Okay. Here's one I think everyone should read. And that is Wild Justice by Mark Beckov and Jessica Pierce. Okay. I've not read that. Okay. That is about basically, you know, animals in their sense of morality or their sense of fair play, right and wrong. Okay. It's an amazing book and it opens you at certainly when I read it, it was just mind bending. Um, I really think that book should be read by everyone in the world. Yeah, I because love that. It's, yes. it's about that sense that yes, you know, nature is not only red in tooth and claw. In fact, it's very cooperative yes. and it does have a system of fairness in 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 those individuals again individuals in cultures animal culture that doesn't mean that you know animal lion culture says no don't eat the little cute little deer over there you know, that, right that's that's not within the you know it's that book i think is really really important just wild so justice think yeah okay and wild it's by justice. mark beckov and jessica pierce and yeah, I, I think anything by Jonathan Balcombe. I actually have a real fondness for Annie Potts's book, Chicken, okay. that mm-hmm. came out. And there's a, actually, there's a whole library of reacton books on individual species that, you know, you can delve into. I mean, everything from moles to, you know, chickens to chimpanzees so it's very very broad and and each book is actually quite beautifully put together too another thing that I would probably say that everybody should read and probably not a lot of people are going to do this but I do think that one of the most life-changing books for me was On Creativity by David Baum Mm-hmm. Because another interest of mine is conceptual physics. So I, I always try to read as much as I can about physics. You are you are a woman of many, many hats. I love this. I love this, I Carol. just love learning. Yeah, and, lifelong and, learner. You know, I just want to mm-hmm. understand stuff. Yes. And that's just the most joyful thing for me. But yeah, that book is really quite incredible in many, many ways. He doesn't talk about animals, but he, he certainly... that way of looking at the world is really, really interesting. Well, Carol, it has been such a pleasure and so enlightening to talk with you today. I could, I could stay here another couple hours, but I, (laughs) I, what what we'll do instead is like I said, we will, we'll think of a nice round table topic and and get you back on here. And and then, and in the meantime, you can be my email buddy. And when these books come up that you think of, you can send send me an email or contact because there's so many out right now. Well, and the other thing, yeah. yeah. And I, I failed to mention too, but of course you have lots of references in this book, but you actually interviewed a lot of people as well. So I, I inter- interviewed Richard Prum, Consula Bachikov, Francois Welmusfelder, Don Krudzma, Annie Potts. Yeah, I know I'm going to forget who else, but yeah. <laughs> A I lot of interview- people, yes. So I had to interview people that, you know, so that, that I felt were. Oh, and my, my friend and colleague, Julie Andreev, an artist mm-hmm. whose work is all about animals, animals. Now, now she's doing a lot of work on trees and, and sound. She's very, very interesting. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, and to all the listeners out there, thank you so much for engaging in this conversation with Carol and I today and Carol, the creative lives of animals. I know it was recently released. It dropped like a November 22nd. So how do we as listeners get our hands on this book, the creative lives of animals? Well, thankfully, it is everywhere. You can go to New York University Press and get a copy. You can get it, I hate to say this, on Amazon. You can get it on indie book, you know, indie books, books, bookshop. It's 
believe it or not, in Walmart and Target. And I do. I read the book. I, I believe was, it. I believe that it's in Target and <laughs> and 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 Barnes and Noble. What's funny is Barnes and Noble says it's out of stock, and there's another place. I think it's Target that says sold out. And I was like, did they not print enough? <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I think they are. You know, the press. The press has been wonderful. It's what it's the the dream. Press, New York University Press, and the people I've worked with have been dream people, and they're I they are greatly to be thanked. I appreciated every every single one of them, and I say that you know in the acknowledgments. But yeah, you can kind of get it anywhere, and if you can't in your local bookstore, just go in and just say, "Hey, could you order this for me?" You, oh, Carol, you. honestly, thank you. Go out and grab your copy of the Creative Lives of Animals. You will definitely thank me later. I, I learned a lot. It is a great, great thank read. You. <laughs> so we really, we really appreciate you, Carol. Keep writing, keep fighting for animals to be seen as individuals and for their creative lives to be recognized. Thank you, Angie. I really enjoyed this and I it's a pleasure to talk with you. It's been great. Thanks. Thank you, Carol. 